Hello and welcome to The Stockout. The Stockout is your show at FreightWaves about CPG companies, supply chains, and CPG companies, supply chains. Uh, happy Friday. It's been a long uh, week, uh, certainly for people along the Gulf Coast or even in uh, New York. And, um, you know, it's been a busy week here at FreightWaves uh, between the wall-to-wall coverage of uh, Hurricane Ida earlier in the week to the ongoing drama between uh, the Kansas City uh, Southern Railroad and uh, Canadian National with the Service Transportation Board, at least uh, rejecting that initial uh, you know, shareholder uh, voting a uh, trust. Um, and I guess the latest uh, news there is uh, Kansas City Southern is going to put off, um, you know, voting on uh, uh, you know, until later in the month. So it's been, uh, you know, busy and all the way until the, the very end of the week with uh, transportation news. And uh, adding to that uh, was a lot of the content that, that we put out at Freight Waves on the Intermodal Summit on Wednesday uh, if anyone is interested in Intermodal, would strongly encourage you to go to tv.freightwaves.com and check out uh, the many uh, good sessions uh, from the Intermodal Summit that we hosted on Wednesday. I did one uh, uh, speaking with the, the chief marketing officer of uh, Norfolk Southern, uh, Alan Shaw. We also had a session with Union Pacific. We had a, a session with DCLI. We had uh, perspectives from you know uh, shipper groups, carrier groups, from, from intermediaries, from just a lot of different perspectives. Um, that, that really got to the heart of, of what's happening in, in intermodal, um, and I'm going to be talking about some of the highlights on that, you know, this week. Um, and before that, I'm going to give a rundown of uh, what's happening in the world of, of CPG. Um, you know, some news this week uh, from some big uh, CPG uh, companies. So I'm going to do that. Um, but first, a word from our sponsor. Um, our sponsor this week is NYSHEX. That's the New York Shipping Exchange. The New York Shipping Exchange, or NYSHEX, is supporting the transformation of container shipping by solving inefficiencies associated with booking, downfalls, and shipment rollings. To learn more, uh, please visit NYSHEX.com, N-Y-S-H-E-X.com. Um, we're going to have uh, someone from NYSHEX on uh, the stockout later uh, this month, so we'll get all sorts of detail on what's happening in the world of ocean Shipping, which seems like a difficult uh, situation, um, from what I understand, with uh, you know, con- you know, containers being rolled from one vessel to the next vessel to the next vessel, a lot of uncertainty as to you know when those containers uh, can get you know into the United States. So um, I think a lot of shippers are are, are are nervous, upset that their contracts have not been honored. We're going to hear a lot more about that in the weeks to come. Um, but first, now moving on to some of the CPG news. Um, and so the first thing here is this strike uh, continues at snack giant Mondelez. Mondelez, if you don't know who that is, uh, they own uh, Nabisco. Um, they, uh, uh, the big, big, the most famous uh, product is probably Oreo cookies. Uh, so Oreo cookies, uh, Ritz crackers, uh, premium saltines, Triscuits are some of the things that they make. Um, so there's uh, been a strike that you know initially started uh, August 10th in Portland, Oregon and has uh, spread to other bakeries in Colorado, Illinois, Georgia, Virginia. So three out of four major bakeries now um, have had some work stoppage. And kind of an interesting story because, um, you know, you do wonder if this would be taking place if it wasn't such a tight labor market or if now is the time when the, um, you know, the, the unions feel sort of emboldened with uh, sort of a shortage of, of hourly, uh, you know, workers. And, um, it was interesting too with the CPG, you know, industry. Uh, there was such you know tremendous demand during the pandemic. A lot of these workers had to work 16, 20 hour shifts. They received a lot of overtime pay, 
in in that period of time. And um, you know, these these workers have been working without a contract since May. And uh, you know, part of the term that's a sticking point is they've uh, the, the the company wants a, a, a change in the definition of of either what overtime is or what constitutes overtime. Uh, for instance, um, you know. Weekend work will not automatically be count as as counted as overtime according to the company um, you know, unless you know the person had worked Monday through Friday, which you know on surface seems fair. Of course, unions don't like that. And one union rep said that some workers stand out to stand to lose as much as forty thousand dollars a year in overtime pay, which seems like a tremendous amount of overtime for um, hourly worker that's you know putting cookies together. Um, you know, or, or whatever they're doing exactly uh, in the bakery, but um, it, it seems like a pretty significant, you know, change. And and and, and so they're sort of at a, at a standoff. And what's interesting too is, is some of the grocers are, you know, ordering uh, some of these products ahead of time. They say, well, the Mondelez brands, you know, Oreo cookies, Ritz crackers do tend to sell better than, you know, some of the competitors. Like a competitor would be uh, Keebler, which is owned by by Kellogg's. Um, so some grocers are are ordering, you know, ahead of time. Uh, others are, um, you know, maybe you know, taking their taking their chances. But um, you know, it does seem like it's possible that you know th- th- you could get a, sh- a shortage or stock out of, of some of those cookies if this goes on, um, you know, much longer. So um, so get your Oreos if you're a fan of, of, of Oreos. Um, and you know, heard from other CPG companies this week that they they're really you know concerned about you know the, the labor situation. I mean, I think that the labor situation has sort of gone you know, from, from bad to worse. And you are seeing, you know, some companies get more aggressive this week. You probably did see that Walmart increased its, its, its wages by a dollar an hour for, um, I guess the whole, the whole company that's on, that's on hourly, you know, pay. And then they also said they're hiring, I think it was 20,000 supply chain workers at $20 an hour, which, you know, some of the other CPG companies that are competing for the same, um, you know, uh, labor force, um, you know, heard, you know, spoke with one of them this week that said, oh, these are, these are exactly the same people that, you know, we're trying to hire. So that was not, um, you know, helpful to, to them, at least that Walmart is getting more aggressive, uh, hiring more people, um, you know, to, to, to support their, their supply chain. So interesting to see what happens uh, with, with, with Mondelez and that strike. I'll keep you updated uh, on the stock out. Uh, topic number two here, uh, also related to labor, uh, unions agree to Tyson Foods COVID-19 vaccine uh, mandate. So I think this is interesting. Uh, Tyson mandated that all of their employees in the U.S. have to be vaccinated. And that's, and that's a lot of workers. It's 120,000 workers approximately in the U.S. Um, and before that mandate, only about 47% of them uh, were, were vaccinated. Um, and uh, so, so the, the um, salaried employees have to be uh, vaccinated basically by you know, middle of September and pretty shortly here. I think it might even be deadline might even be passed now. Uh, uh, the hourly workers, I think it's by mid October, uh, so that's coming up uh, pretty quickly as as well. And uh, they said since those uh, requirements, about thirty thousand workers that had not been vaccinated went out and got vaccinated. So they basically went from forty seven percent vaccinated at Tyson to three quarters vaccinated at Tyson. So uh, big improvement. There, but you know, it still leaves about thirty thousand employees who are not vaccinated. Tyson, who may become ineligible to work, and this comes at a time when Tyson says that they have about ten percent of their positions are unfilled. They have had uh, trouble getting people to show up uh, to work. It says they say they take about six days uh, to get about five days of work done, just because they don't have the people. 
um, you know, I did listen to their latest uh, earnings call, and it was almost comical because management uh, again and again said, uh, you know, we're going to be the, the most desirable place to work, most desirable place to work. They repeated that phrase, you know, a, a, again and again. It was almost like, okay, we should, you know, take take a drink every time they say Tyson's going to be a desirable place to to, to to work. It was kind of it was kind of funny, but it just sort of underscores um, their major problem right now and why they have have had. Uh, disappointing uh, throughput with chicken, um, you know, not being able to produce as much chicken as they want. They've taken things like, uh, you know, projects to increase the hatching numbers, but but really um, it, it's sort of a labor situation and some of their plants are in pretty uh, remote areas. So it's not like they have a tremendous amount of uh, sort of people, you know, locally to, to, to pull from um, doing things like helping employees with transportation, if say they're in a household with one vehicle and they don't always have that employee doesn't always have access to it all you know all days of the week, they're trying to help them with um, we know with that or, or even doing things like experimenting on, on one site with on on site uh, daycare. Um, you know, if someone has a has a kid that that they need to take care of, they don't want that to stop them from from working. So um, Tyson sort of pulling out all the stops. Um, you know, I've also heard uh, similar things this week from other. CPG companies, the Campbell Soup uh, CEO said the shortage in labor is the worst he has ever seen in his career. Um, and now uh, Kraft Heinz is rolling out a similar vaccine mandate, you know, similar to one that, that I just described with Tyson. Um, and it'll be interesting, I think, to see how these vaccine mandates, you know, end up uh, playing out because, you know, on the one hand, uh, they could really exacerbate the labor situation if, Let's say those remaining thirty thousand people at Tyson just you know put, put a line in the sand. And they say you know I'm not going to get vaccinated under any circumstance. Well, now instead of being short twelve thousand people, Tyson's going to be short forty two thousand you know people uh, you know roughly, um, and, and maybe they can't you know get out as much uh, you know meat as 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 is the case. You know on the other hand, uh, the you know, that, that could make you know employees feel safer if they know that all of their colleagues are. Are, are, are vaccinated. I mean, things like food processing, you do tend to have people in very close quarters. Um, you know, early in the pandemic, the meat industry was hit particularly hard uh, with COVID outbreaks. And you can certainly see why management Tyson is trying to avoid that again uh, with the, the, the Delta variant uh, being more widespread. I'm, I'm sure if I was in that position, I would, I would you know, probably issue the same you know, you know, mandate, but um, you also think you do have a lot of uh, nervous uh, CPG, uh, you know, uh, companies right now to, to just hoping that people decide to show up. Um, but at least, you know, the unions uh, seem to be on board with uh, with management's uh, decision to you know, mandate vaccines. So I think that's an interesting uh, uh, story in uh, CPG world. I'll keep you updated on, uh, on that. Uh, topic number three here is uh, refrigerated rates uh, uh, keep rising. And I mean, really, the, the, the dry van spot rates keep rising, too. But um, refrigerated rates um, got a sonar a chart that shows that uh, you know there it is that the reefer rates now four dollars and twenty seven cents per mile and yes a lot of that was due in the last week to Hurricane Ida before the last week it was about four eleven so you know pretty uh, significant increase just in the past week as as things have tightened up um, but you know even so that four eleven. Uh, tremendously high, you know, reefer rate, and you know, even in dry van, we're looking at three dollars and forty-nine cents a mile. You know, when you include fuel, uh, some of that increase has been fuel. Those those quotes do include fuel, and, and fuel, of course, has been on a tear. Prices have risen uh, dramatically the last uh, six or eight um, you know months, um, but still, I think it really just sort of speaks to 
you know, tightness in, uh, in, the, in the marketplace overall, um, you know, difficulty getting the, the equipment, uh, difficulty getting the, the, the drivers. Um, you know, we always talk about, seems like we always talk about drivers in the, the trucking industry. Um, but what's different this time is it's difficult to get drivers for short haul applications. That is very different. Um, it's always hard to get the, the guys for the long haul. Uh, it's not a lot of fun to sleep in a, a sleeper cab, I would imagine. Um, but you know, the, the, the drainage companies having uh, such issues with, uh, you know, uh, labor, um, when the average dray is 40, 50 miles, some companies it's 80, 90 miles, but you're still talking about duty cycles where you get home every single night. You do get to see your family. You do have more of that balanced lifestyle. Um, even in, in, in those positions, it's, it's getting hard to find people. So that, you know, is different than, um, you know, what's, what's typical. Uh, next topic here, uh, Kraft Heinz ordered to pay $62 million uh, fine uh, to settle an SEC investigation. Um, I think Kraft Heinz is, is uh, going to be uh, happy to have this behind them. Um, and they talked about this a little bit on the second quarter uh, call. Um, and my understanding is that payment has, has been made and now it is behind them. And just as sort of a review, this was a, a penalty that was associated with improper accounting, a company uh, understated its cost of goods sold. And this is a civil penalty. Um, and this is basically, it was, it was a longstanding, um, you know, uh, mistreatment in the, in the financials it took place from 2015 to 2018. So call it three, you know, three years. The public found out about this in February of 2019. So about two and a half years ago, it was disclosed in an earnings report. And, um, that was a bad day at the office. Uh, Kraft and Oscar Myers brands uh, were written down by 15.4 billion. Company slashed dividends by 36%. The share price fell by about a third that day. Um, and uh, you know, I think if you've ever talked to a CFO who has had to cut the dividend, it um, is probably something that takes years off of their life. It's it's probably the sort of the worst experience a CFO can have. And um, I imagine that's especially true at a company like Kraft Heinz, where you do have a shareholder base that um, you know, cares about that dividend, uh, since it's sort of a, it's a household name, um, sort of you know, buy, buy and hold. You know, the investors are, are ones that you know, are, you know, have it to, 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 to cut the coupon um, you know, every quarter. So you know, the, the management was gutted after that. Um, and the SEC also charged former COO uh, and the chief procurement officer for their misconduct, um, and then there was a new CEO shortly thereafter, uh, named in, in in April. So I think Kraft Heinz, uh, you know, with the, that payment being made, happy to move, you know, beyond you know, beyond those uh, those issues. You know, topic number five here, and this is the one I'm going to spend the the most uh, you know, time we have remaining on, is our intermodal summit takeaways. Uh, intermodal summit, I thought it was really great. Um, it was Wednesday, had about um, ten sessions or so. Yeah, you know, I did the one uh, with, with Norfolk Southern. And uh, for those unable to attend, you can check out all the replays at tv.freightwaves.com. Um, and I also wrote up for the uh, Stockout uh, newsletter, uh, you know, my takeaways uh, from the, 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 the sessions. And I'll go through some of those. I also have a sonar chart that, that shows uh, what's happening in, in domestic um, intermodal, which I think, you know, des- describes, you know, what's happening pretty well is, is domestic intermodal loaded volume down about nine this is the, just the domestic intermodal volume uh, loaded, and we get this every single day. And you know, right now, uh, if you look at this week versus a year ago, 
domestic uh, container volume down nine and a half percent. The loaded volume is, and um, you know, you compare that to international volume is down about eight and a half percent. So it's it's definitely um, you know, those are, are coming under pressure, and it has nothing to do with demand. There's plenty of demand to move uh, to move goods around the country. It really is. You know issues with um, with supply and uh, you know fluidity and, and all those issues and um, you know really the there was a tremendous surge in imports earlier this year starting in about March industry got behind on those trends on, on that volume and never really truly caught up it was just sort of delays sort of you know led to led to greater delays so, um, and, and and you know we're still sort of dealing with the that at, at this at this time. Uh, you know, some of the inter- one of the interesting quotes from the the Intermodal Summit this week was Elise Gosh, um, the Vice President of Intermodal Sales at Union Pacific, described chassis as the ultimate constraint of 2021. There was quite a lot of discussion about chassis chassis at the the Intermodal uh, you know summit. There was also a lot of discussion on the situation at the ports. Um, you know, Port Port Authority of Virginia just received their largest vessel to date as a 16,000 TEU container ship. And they were basically saying, you know, we're, we're not done yet. We're going to 24,000. You know, we have all the dredging in place. They dredged from a 50 foot to 55 foot. They also widened the shipping canal um, to accommodate those much larger vessels. Um, and, and so, you know, it does it seem to, to stand to reason that, you know, this past year, even though there's been a, uh, a market share gain in the West Coast ports versus the East Coast ports, or the, the trend before then, before the last you know year year and a half, it was the East Coast ports gaining market share, and that's because that's a, a sort of a lower cost you know alternative to get goods into the country, um, and and would expect that to continue um, if we get into a situation where inventories start to look normal um, and, and things just uh, get get to be a little bit a little bit smoother. So. You know, really up and down the East Coast, the, the ports are making, you know, tremendous uh, in, investments. The Port of Virginia is a very good example of that. And another interesting thing that uh, Port of Virginia said at our conference was that they're focusing on serving intermodal customers in sort of, sort of the core markets. And so you think of the, the core intermodal markets as being on uh, the eastern part of the country, you know, Chicago, uh, you know, uh, Atlanta. Um, you know, further north, it would be like, you know, New, Newark, um, you know, New, New York City, you know, metro area, um, you know, in the center of the country, would be more like Dallas and the west would be L.A. Um, and it said, you know, the Port of Virginia, um, you know, is really sort of focused on those core markets. So it is a lot of, you know, Chicago and, and Atlanta, and they're, they're really not sort of focused on those uh, sort of uh, smaller markets just yet. And the reason is that any, you know, attempt to address some of these smaller uh, intermodal markets would just take capacity away from the core customers that are in the core lanes, and they're not really in a position to do that. So I thought that was interesting. It sort of dovetails with um, some of what we've been telling uh, certain uh, of, of our uh, clients at, uh, at Freight Waves that you know, converting truckloads from truckloads to intermodal now is probably not the time to to, to do it given the given the service issues. Um, and there's also a good session um, that uh, JP Hampstead uh, moderated with Elise Gosh at uh, Union Pacific. And uh, Union Pacific, um, you know, like a lot of, of railroads, is is taking a, a numerous steps to address the intermodal congestion. And so I can rattle off a few of these. They're, it opened up an intermodal ramp in Minneapolis. They made investments in West Colton Yard, that's in Southern California. Uh, they're making temporary use of some facilities in Chicago. 
which um, you know is a departure from you know what they've what they've done recently in Chicago, which is, is actually going from six you know uh, terminals to three terminals. But um, they're, they're trying to increase the capacity there. They're also doing more with uh, Loop Logistics, uh, which is their uh, intermodal subsidiary. Um, that's a company that we run into here at uh, Freight Waves. Um, Loop sources its own drainage capacity, so they're working closer with uh, Loop Logistics. Um, you know, with you know, on their drainage capacity, you know, a big issue in the rail industry lately has been throughput at the terminals. I talked to uh, Norfolk Southern about that. If you want to listen to the discussion there, but basically, uh, the the because the, there's a lack of drainage capacity, the containers are piling up at the terminals, and that's created a big uh, you know choke point. Um, you do need to have the drainage uh, you know take the containers out of the terminals in order to bring in bring in more containers. Um, so that's been a big issue. Um, and then there were uh, there was a lot of discussion from you know a number of different you know companies at our intermodal summit about chassis availability. And uh, you know this is constrained by a few things. If you want to know the the gritty details about why there's a chassis um, you know, shortage, uh, you know John Kingston interviewed an attorney who was involved in the in, in the case, um, the anti-dumping case, and he goes into it in sort of in, in, in great detail. But basically, there was an anti-dumping case that the U.S. manufacturers won against the Chinese uh, manufacturers for basically, you know, dumping or having you know, government-subsidized production that were, you know, ha- having prices at such a low level that it put the U.S. Uh, uh, producers out of business. Um, and and after uh, that, uh, you know, that case went in, the, went in in favor of the U.S. manufacturers. You know, they really weren't producing any chassis, so it takes a period of time for them to ramp up that manufacturing capacity. So um, that's part of the reason why there's just hasn't been a lot of new capa- uh, uh, chassis capacity introduced into the marketplace. The Chinese producers have stopped producing. U.S. producers are in the process of ramping up, but not fully there. Uh, you know, that, that takes some, some time. And then, you know, add to that, uh, uh, Norfolk Southern had to um, uh, repair a lot of its uh, chassis um, because there was a manufacturing defect, not, not their fault, but they still had to find the contractors to, to repair. It still takes time. They're almost through that process now, um, but that's really not, you know, the only issue. And then, you know, in addition to the manufacturing capacity, you have the issue uh, similar to what I was just describing with the containers where the, the chassis aren't moving quick enough. And so you have this decline in productivity with the chassis, which basically um, makes it as, as if there were fewer, fewer chassis if they're not being turned. So, it, lots of issues with uh, intermodal equipment, uh, you know, being turned. Um, and I'll leave you today with some other stats uh, that came out of the intermodal summit that I that I wrote down. I thought were interesting. Um, so one speaker said the drainage capacity has, has been an issue throughout the country, not just the West Coast. Um, uh, another one said that a typical wait time for a vessel at anchor is uh, seven to eight, you know, days. Of course, um, you know, our writers of freight waves have been you know talked in, in great detail about number of containers, ships that have been, uh, you know, off the coast of LA, it's been sort of 40 plus containers at anchor waiting to, waiting for a berth, but they're sitting there for seven, eight, seven to eight days. So, so after this two week journey from China, which there's probably congestion in China, they're sitting in the San Pedro Bay for seven to eight days. So even more delays. Um, another speaker said in some locations, containers have been sitting at either ports or terminals for another 30 to 60 days. So, um, you know, really severe, um, you know, delays there. And then this was probably the most, you know, um, shocking thing is, is one uh, speaker said that the rail ramp congestion has been so bad that sometimes the, the, the drainage drivers are struggling to locate 
the assigned containers. So they're going into the terminal when you can't find a dream. Can you can uh, get a dream to go in the terminal? He's having a hard time finding the container he needs to to to, to take out of the out of the, the the terminal. So so that's even that's been an issue. That there's been so much um, you know, congestion at the terminals and, and 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 so many containers piled up, maybe piled you know where they shouldn't be. Um, which has made it difficult to get the, the appropriate containers uh, you know, out of the terminals. And then some retail shippers, uh, someone else said some retail shippers have been seeing delivery uh, ship uh, delivery uh, schedules slip six to eight weeks or, or longer. Um, so six to eight weeks can be the difference between, you know, easily the difference between, you know, making the back to school shopping season or not, or um, having uh, products on, on, on shelves for, in time for Christmas or not. Um, and then another a uh, company said, and I think we've heard this from others, that you know initially shippers just want to get the products into the United States, sort of any means necessary, any port necessary, even if it's not the typical port that they're accustomed to, and, and it's, it's setting up shippers to do um, to do business in uh, in in freight lanes that they're not really accustomed to. Um, so that's created some some additional inefficiencies. There's a lots of you know regional you know, carriers throughout the country. Um, and, and so it does, it's a different sort of set of contacts when you're um, moving goods in through a different port rather than the port that you always um, move products through. So, um, you know, that's created, uh, you know, additional efficiencies. And they said it's also uh, created additional uh, lanes. Um, you know, a lot of those lanes are outbound from Savannah. So Savannah has been, uh, you know, a beneficiary of, um, you know, some of this overflow freight. I mean, part of that's because it's it's, you know, one of the, the the southernmost, you know, major ports. Once you get out of the smaller ones in uh, in, in in Florida, for traffic that's going through the Panama Canal, um, which is which, but that in itself is a, is a much longer sailing. You can talk about that as being more like a four week sailing rather than two weeks if you're going to the to the to the West Coast. But there have certainly been a lot of reroutings to avoid um, you know the congestion at the West Coast, and now some of that congestion has has, has migrated over to the the East Coast. And then uh, finally, some shippers have said that they're using uh, more port, ports of entry. Um, typically, would use two ports of entry. Now they're using more four, like four port, ports of entry, to have more flexibility in, in their supply chain. And they expect um, you know that to sort of permanently be up up at uh, you know four or or more ports. And they typically would have uh, to to, inc- to include to increase the flexibility of their supply chain and sort of mitigate you know risk if you do get into a situation where there's lots of you know congestion at uh, various ports. So, you know, did write that, write that up for the website. Um, again, would encourage you to um, go, uh, you know, check out uh, any of those uh, videos. Um, I'm partial to the one um, on the, when I, where I interviewed uh, uh, Alan Shaw at Norfolk Southern, but I thought all of them were, were very good. Also, uh, would encourage you, if you're not already signed up for the Stockout newsletter, to please go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the Stockout and sign up for my uh, newsletter. Um, you know, talk about uh, CPG companies and their supply chain issues. I also talk a lot about the data that we see at freight waves, uh, whether that's truckload, maritime, intermodal, reefer, um, sort of uh, touch on a lot of those different you know, data series, what I'm finding uh, interesting. But with that, hope everyone has a great uh, you know weekend and hope everyone uh, was safe uh, during the, the hurricane.